Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, June 7th, 2022 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz drummer Jimmy McBride, a drummer-composer based in New York City. He has performed with a wide variety of artists, including Herbie Hancock, Terrence Blanchard, Wynton Marcellus, Kenny Barron, Jimmy Green, and Adam Rogers. Coming from an artistic family, his father is a composer and mother a visual artist. Jimmy began playing drums at age three and gravitated toward jazz music at an equally young age. Jimmy is a recent graduate of the Juilliard School, where he studied privately with Carl Allen, Billy Drummond, and Kenny Washington. He is a regular performer throughout New York City, performing at such venues as Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, Smalls, the Jazz Gallery, and the Blue Note. His musical talents have also taken him worldwide, touring across Europe, Asia, and North America. Jimmy has also appeared at some of the world's most famous venues, including the Monterey Jazz Festival, North Sea Jazz Festival, and Newport Jazz Festival, among others. He performs regularly with different artists, including Nir Felder, Eldar Zhangriov, Manuel Valera, Lucas Pino's Nanette, Nick Finzer's Here and Now, and the Roxy Koss Quintet. In addition, he can be seen playing with many of New York's most creative and forward-thinking artists, including Laja Lund, Melissa Aldana, Ben Street, Kevin Hayes, Fabian Almazan, Matt Brewer, Michael Rodriguez, and Dana Stevens, among many others. 
He is also an active recording artist, appearing on over 40 albums to date. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Jimmy McBride. Hello, Jimmy. Hello. It's, uh, How are you? I'm doing great. It's really great to uh, talk with you, and I'm very pleased to have you as a guest on uh, my podcast and uh, very interested to, uh, to visit with you for the next hour or so. Oh, I'm really curious. Me. Oh, sure. You know, one of the things I'm really curious about in reading your, you know, your bio information is as a drummer, you have worked as a sideman with some very remarkable musicians, uh, not only in live settings, but also on their recordings. Now, mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I have a number of listeners who are in a younger demographic and might maybe uh, aspiring to be musicians, uh, professional musicians themselves. So the first question I'd like you to address is what is one lesson you may have learned from all the professionals you have encountered in your career that you uh, have carried with you still to the present day? Um, well, let's see. I mean, that's a, it might be hard to narrow it down to just one. Uh, well, that's okay. One lesson, but, uh, you know, I think there are some kind of, you know, common things across many different people that I've noticed, uh, you know, um, I guess the, the first thing is, uh, you know, to have a, the first thing that comes to mind is to have, you know, kind of a unnerving sense of commitment to music uh, and, and to love it enough that like, no matter, you know, what kind of, you know, because a life in music is not an easy one, although it's very rewarding and it's very, you know, I feel very fortunate to have a life in music. I think we all know, especially since jazz is not the popular music of today, uh, you know, it, it's not, you're not just instantly rewarded with, you know, financially or, or et cetera. And, and um, you have to really love playing music to want to do this and and no matter kind of what happens or what obstacles you might face uh your desire to play and to grow has to sort of you can use that as sort of fuel to you know keep working and keep keep trying to get better and keep creating opportunities for yourself and i've noticed that in all the people that i have worked with and all the musicians that i admire at all um is yeah that they're just fully committed to making music and and no matter you know if the conditions are not quite right or um the sound wasn't perfect or um you know they had a long day traveling to the gig or any of that so it doesn't really matter because then when it comes time to play uh you have to give it your all and mm -hmm. um yeah so that's one thing and and having you know uh integrity about about music and you know kind of not dumbing down anything that you do and and trusting that the listener and the audience you know um whether they're informed jazz listeners or maybe they've never heard jazz before at all but that you know people will connect with what you do if you if you're honest with them and if you present uh your music with integrity uh and if you're true to yourself 
And I've noticed that about people that I've worked with that I, uh, you know, that inspire me. And I, I was like, I, I want to be that way. You know, I don't want to mm-hmm. uh, compromise at all. Um, but I still want to connect with people. I don't want to, you know, it's finding that balance between, you know, presenting something that people can connect to um, and being like, well, no, this is who I am and this is what I feel and how I want to express myself. And uh, yeah, I honestly think that if you're honest with that expression and you're clear in your intent, uh, people will connect with it. So mm-hmm. um, those are some things that I've I've learned and I try to keep that in mind uh, in my own you know, musical life. So. Well, I, th- I think you, you speak well in terms of the, the commitment or the love that you have to have for the art form, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, it's what I often tell, you know, my sidemen when we go out to play. Of course, I have the luxury that I'm a retired university educator. I don't have to rely on playing music for uh, uh, to make a living, mm-hmm. but uh but I love music. I love to play. And, uh, and I, it's what I always tell my side, man, I always say, Hey, you know, let's make sure and have fun. Cause we're not going to get rich. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and, uh, and, and we do have a good time, but I'm also thinking about something that I would often tell my students about mm-hmm. making a commitment to music Two two things that came to mind while you were talking. One was the stories about John Coltrane that, that even when he was on breaks, from, like he'd be playing a club date and mm-hmm. on breaks instead of you know going outside to have a smoke or you know whatever people might do he'd be in the restroom practicing mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because you know he always was it seemed like he was always striving to reach another level and then i also think about the story about the great cellist pablo casals mm-hmm. who was asked when he, this is when he was in his 90s said maestro I mean, you've had this wonderful career, yet you still practice every day. Why is that? And his response was, well, I think I'm getting better. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah, I mean? I mean, I mean these, are, these are the kinds of things that you, know, you cannot be a dilettante and be completely successful in music. You can be marginally successful. You can have fun and kicks and so on. But I think really what you're talking about is that hunger for music and for the art form has to supersede almost everything else. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was gonna say like, I think, you know, I've heard those stories too. And, and both, uh, both those people you mentioned, of course, are very inspirational, especially John Coltrane. Um, I think all jazz musicians today would cite him as an influence and, and, and also as a, um, someone we can look to as far as really setting the bar for, you know, always striving to get better and to, uh, you know, search for something new. And, but I think in that case, and with anyone, you know, because if you have that love for music and you get joy out of it, no one really has to force you to do that. It doesn't have to feel like, but like work, like, oh, I have to try to get better at this or practice. It's something you want to do. And it's, and there's joy in that process of learning and growing and not always succeeding and, and having some times in your life where you feel like you're still kind of working it out. And I think because we play improvised music too, and we're sort of putting ourselves out there when we perform and, we don't exactly know what's going to happen. Uh, there is always that chance for 
uh, things not to work out exactly how we thought or were. And I think that's a good thing. I think when you're, you know, kind of pushing yourself to your uh, limit in terms of self-expression, I think there's the opportunity for great things to happen and, you know, some missteps, but that's, that's a good thing. You should never feel entirely comfortable Mm -hmm. uh, and be like, Oh, I know exactly what I'm doing. (laughs) So uh, I like that about music, you know, about Mm -hmm. jazz music, especially. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that, yeah, if you love it enough, like I said, it, it doesn't have to feel like work or like someone's forcing you to do this. It's what you love. So, well, you know, I used to, I would tell my students, uh, and I taught a lot of non-music people as well as mm-hmm. people studying music. I said, the greatest con is to find somebody who will pay you to do what you love, and then you'll mm-hmm. never work another day in your life. <laughs> and, uh, and then it's like, you know, and, and you'll eventually reach that level, and you want to get to that level where when it's time to practice, you're not looking at it as a chore, but rather an opportunity a chance mm-hmm. to go down and, and work on something to get better at your instrument and, and, and have a good time with mm-hmm. it. But I'm chuckling also because I had a gig last night. We were playing uh, with, I was playing with my uh, early jazz uh, ra- and ragtime band last night. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing a tune where uh, it was actually supposed to go into a double time. And I forget, somebody in the rhythm section missed the cue. So instead of immediately going into double time, it was more of an accelerando poco a poco, but it still was, you know, it still worked out all right. And, mm-hmm. and, and the audience didn't seem to mind and we still had a good time and, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, you just have to roll with it. And that's, that's the beauty about jazz too, is that, uh, it is it is not just a performing art it's a performance art the art is Mm -hmm. being created in the moment right right of course and uh and that's uh that's of course the thing that always excites me about it is it must you as well from what i hear Mm -hmm. absolutely well you know i don't know if this will be the same um advice that you might give uh but for my again for my listeners who are aspiring to be professionals uh you know is there a key piece of advice you could give so that they could uh you know remember what it takes to be an effective side man so they'll get hired back or hired by others yeah definitely there uh there are some things that i try to remind myself of and i've learned from others about i mean and i'm sure um those who are listening have probably heard many of these things before because they are sort of timeless, but like, you know, being on time or uh, being prepared, um, you know, if, if there's specific music to learn for the gig that you're on or the recording that you're doing or tour that you're about to embark on, uh, you know, check it out ahead of time and, and learn it, you know, as well as you can before, you know, uh, don't just assume that you're going to figure it out on the gig. And especially if someone's calling you for the first time, um, you know, you want to make, like you said, you want to get hired again. Uh, And I I had heard some people say that the harder part is, is keeping the gig, not getting the gig. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you want to do all you can to keep the gig and to make whoever is hiring you think that, Oh, this person, you know, is taking what I do seriously. You know, they, they came prepared, they showed up knowing what it is that I want to do. They are, you know, here on time 
they're they have the right equipment that they need they're wearing the right clothing or you know any of those things um you know they seem sort of might seem sort of obvious but they are important and and they're also just good their habits you know if you get in the habit of doing that all the time um you know that's those are good habits to form to like just always be on time and to have people know that you have a reputation for that of being prepared and being professional um and then the other thing is because you know we're human beings and this is a social thing that we're doing you know it's important to be a good person and treat people with respect mm -hmm. and be someone who's easy to work with uh especially especially in you know in traveling situations where you spend a lot of time with people um for you know days or weeks on end you want to make sure that you're someone that everyone could get along with um that you're not going to be a drag to be around and um yeah you know and again that may seem kind of obvious but it does make a difference um that people would want to spend time with you and that affects the music you know if exactly if, you know if, if you don't get along or if you don't uh want to spend time with people you know then when you're on the bandstand uh yeah it can be sort of a drag so i would say those you know sort of kind of probably have been said many many times by many people but um they still hold true you know uh and you know just just to get in the habit of doing that stuff and then you know of course all of the preparation and and practice that you've done in your life as a musician um you know when it's time to play and you're on the gig you know give it like i said give it your all and play as well as you can uh and don't mm -hmm. don't ever phone it in or uh and no matter what if you're playing just a little local gig or if it's some big concert it doesn't really matter like those you know external factors shouldn't affect how you the level to which you play and uh you know you should always treat everything the same you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then yeah i think you know you do those things over and over and it, it you know people will recognize it so yeah i i i think that's awesome advice and i'd echo that to any of my younger listeners last night for example when we finish the gig, I, I love the guys I play with. I don't think I had to touch one piece of my gear other than my own horn and my folder because everyone else pitched in, got stuff, you know, taken care of and put away. So I'm standing there because I was talking to the manager of the place where we played. Mm -hmm. They wanted to talk to me about the gig. And I turn around and everything's gone. And I go, wow, this is cool. So I, I, <laughs> my, nice. my drummer, of course, drummers are, are usually the last people to finish because you got more gear. So mm -hmm. I had, I kind of eased my guilt by helping my drummer schlep his stuff to his car. You know? <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> you know, yeah. but uh, because I, I think that's it. You're so, you're so right. Ultimately, if you're, uh, you know, easygoing, easy to get along with and a nice person, people are going to want you around more than somebody who's a jerk. Mm -hmm. no matter yeah, how yeah. no matter how well you play yeah exactly yeah so. yeah I, you know i over the past year plus i've talked to a number of uh new york-based musicians and and new york-based drummers mm -hmm. and actually is having a an online conversation with a 
with a guy who's become a good friend of mine that was on my show clear back uh, when I started, Dan Pugach. I don't know if you know oh, yeah. Dan. I know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, he's a great uh, band leader and writer. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we were we were kind of sharing some things. Uh, and uh, uh, so not that I necessarily want to feel like uh, you're, you're bragging and, and, and that, but I, I do, I am interested in knowing what do you feel you bring to others, recordings and live performances that might be distinct from other drummers in the larger New York circle? Mm. What makes Jimmy McBride unique? <laughs> uh, let's see. I mean, that's a good question. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I've never, I guess I've never really been asked that that way, uh, but um, it's good to kind of think about. And um, I would say, well, you know, I mean, I I think I some of those things I just mentioned to you about mm-hmm. being, you know, professional. Uh, I do those things well, uh, and you know, I think that I'm I'm reliable. But as far as you know, what makes me unique because that I mean, there's a lot of reliable drummers and reliable musicians but um you know i think that i'm i'm pretty you know i think i listen well uh i guess i when i answer this question i should say that i'm just kind of thinking about maybe some things that i think i do well kind of i'm not really trying to compare myself to anyone else because i think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of great musicians who do these things well too uh yes but um you know, I mean, I guess I am a, I am an individual because I am, we're all individuals. Uh, and, you know, I, but I, I guess what I try to think about, I should maybe rephrase this, but, um, you know, as far as, you know, I don't really think about what, okay, what can I bring to this that's unique? It's more like, what can I do to serve this musical vision that this person has, you know? in the way that I think is best. And because, and because it's me approaching it, it's going to be individual because I'm sure, you know, I have certain influences or uh, ways of approaching something that might be different than someone else. And, um, but I guess I'm not always thinking about, okay, how do I do something that's going to be different than what someone else would do more like, let me serve this serve the music as best as I can, play as well as I can. And, um, you know, I, I like a lot of different kinds of music, for example, not just jazz, but, mm-hmm. and I try to kind of bring some of those influences into what I do. And um, I think that I'm, you know, I've been fortunate in my time in New York, you know, I consider myself a jazz musician, but that within that broad umbrella, um, or under that umbrella, there's a lot of different, you know, stylistic variants, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I think that I've been fortunate to be involved in a lot of different kinds of things that people do um, that has, you know, a variety of different influences. And I I think that I, I'm kind of good at fitting into different situations that way, mm-hmm. uh, maybe because I'm somewhat well-versed in different styles or because I just listen to a lot of different kinds of music and okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's something that maybe sort of makes me unique and that I love is that I don't, you know, I don't like just doing the same kind of thing every night or uh, being involved with the same kind of uh, musicians. I like that, oh, 
I did this one thing tonight and tomorrow I'm going to play some music that's totally different uh, and treat, you know, and, and that's equally fun, you know, and that uh, I can still be myself in that situation too. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough question. I'm glad you oh, asked, uh, I, you know, I, I just try to, you know, show up, be prepared and play well and do what I think is best, you know, uh, right. and, and listen and always keep my ears open so then i feel like if if people dig it uh and they you know then they hire me back that's a good thing and you know it's i i guess i try not to think too much about am i you know an individual or uh i think those kind of things are they come sort of organically and and just over the course of many years of just playing and eventually you hopefully arrive at your sound uh mm -hmm. that it makes you you but uh I, I don't think i'm there yet i think i'm still working on it but in the meantime i'm just trying to play well so there you go yeah. there you go yeah. well see my my thinking kind of comes from the standpoint of you know as a trumpet player you know i mean we can listen to certain trumpet players and we can id them by their sound. I mean, you know, like Miles Davis sounds very distinctly different from Freddie Hubbard, who sounds very different than Woody Shaw, mm -hmm. from Chet Baker, uh, you know, Wynton Marcellus, on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, and I, I think about drummers and always encourage drummers that play with me, particularly if they're younger guys and still learning, that as a drummer, Certainly, you have that timekeeping role, but really, timekeeping is everybody's responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, as a drummer, you can, I, I think there's maybe a difference between timekeeping and creating a feel. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of one and the same, but I think kind of that creating a feel is more subtle. You're not, mm -hmm. you know, straightforward, you know, playing the bass drum on every beat, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more like it's implied. And then there are drummers, which I think are more coloristic. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're focusing more on uh, maybe the melodic aspects of the drum set, as limited as they might be in comparison to, say, other, other instruments. But they're mm -hmm. still melodic melodicism i think in the drums absolutely yeah and uh, do you feel like maybe you of those three different and maybe there's more are those just the first three i happen to think about do you think that your playing tends to to lean a little more in in any one of those three directions uh you know i would say i mean at least of those things that you just described i think all of them uh, okay are part of who i am and what I enjoy hearing uh, in music and what I enjoy doing on my instrument. Um, yeah, I think the drums are extremely melodic instrument. Um, and, you know, I mean, we can talk about our, our heroes, people like Max Roach or mm -hmm. Billy Higgins, or, you know, uh, any number of people uh, who I would say are extremely melodic drummers, but also, extremely great yeah timekeepers uh or mm -hmm. if, or i would say maybe not relegate them to just that role but that they can create like you were saying a feel groove um give the music like a dancing quality or you know and 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 in their unique way like you were saying before um that we can i can listen to max roach and know that that's max roach or you know tony williams 
sounds like Tony Williamson. Um, it's kind of everything. I think great drummers, you know, understand all of those roles at the same time of knowing that the role of the drummer, you know, you have a lot of responsibility, yes, to create a groove along with the other people in the band. Um, and you have a lot of ability to shape the music uh, dynamically or uh, with textures and colors that you have available to you. And, um, you know, that you also are kind of directing traffic and, and almost foreshadowing what's going to happen next in the music. Um, and yeah, and creating melodies. Uh, sonically, you have a lot of variety. I think it's like all of those things are all going on all mm -hmm. the time. And uh, it's not like you kind of switch between one and the other. You know, certain music might call for more of like, oh, coloristic kind of approach, or this is more like just creating some kind of groove. But, um, you know, I, I personally like and am drawn to music that has a strong groove, uh, mm -hmm. regardless of the genre. Yeah. And so I, you know, when I play, I try to think about, yeah, creating some kind of groove because that's just something I like, you know, something that, mm -hmm. you know, people can latch onto and they, they could, you know, tap their feet to. And, um, but then also thinking about how to shape things and color them and excuse me. And uh, so I, yeah, I think it's everything. It's all of those things and more uh, and they're all happening all at once. And, and, you know, it's just about kind of finding a way to balance and, and kind of have them all kind of cooperate in a way and, uh, you know, serve the music. Like I said, it's, sure. it's always in service of what's going on in the music. So. I, I was just thinking of a metaphor and you're free to use it if you like, mm -hmm. but I was thinking like, you know, you got three great flavors. You got salt, pepper, and garlic. Now okay. in the correct balance, they make a lot of things taste great, mm -hmm. but too much of one, not enough of another then you may might have problems. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of hear from what you're saying, that's, I mean, I think that's what you're, you're, you're kind of relaying is there's a little bit of all of that. Mm -hmm. There's a time when you want to dig in and you've got to really kick the band. And then there's other times when you can kind of, you know, uh, just uh, maybe lay back from the intensity and let the other aspects. So it's, yeah. And I, I, you know, I would say the drummers that I love playing with the best are people that I never have to tell what to do. They mm -hmm. have huge ears. They know what to put in. Uh, this kid I was playing with last night, he was a sub actually mm. uh, for the, for a drummer that, uh, and he just uh, finished his first year at Berkeley. And uh, he came in last night. I'd never met him before. And we just went, talked over a few things, some of the charts, you know, he says, I've never really played early jazz or ragtime before. And I said, well, I said, uh, you know, remember that early jazz came out of a marching band tradition. It's going to be more snare drum, bass drum, probably not a lot of hi-hat because it mm -hmm. wasn't even invented until 1929, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and that sort of thing. And wow. This kid adapted like it, nobody's I was so impressed he was great mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh unfortunately he'll be gone by September back to school again but <laughs> but uh you know to play have him play with us last night was a real treat so yeah that's great and you know that that's what I'm 
kind of talking about it. It's like showing up and, you know, being prepared, but then also when you're on the gig, you use your ears to, to figure it out and to do what you think is best. And, um, you know, you don't come in with some preconceived idea of, oh, this is who I am. I do this and I'm not going to budge, but you're like, right. okay, let me try to, you know, yeah. get in here. And, and, I, and that, that requires listening. So, yeah. um, kudos to him. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's I great. mean, he yeah. came, he came in, he came in, you know, here he's probably all of 19 and, uh, and he was, uh, as professional as he could be to a T I was really impressed with him. So I wished That's him great. well. And then I said, let me, I'll hang on to your contact information if I need <laughs> another sub during the summer and whatever. Mm -hmm. But, uh, anyway, yeah, it's always, always, uh, uh, great to have people like that. Well, let's get back to you and your playing experiences. And again, this is going to be a hard question, but I ask the hard ones. What, <laughs> what has been your most memorable gig? Ah, uh, um, you know, one that comes to mind, at least something that I think was a great learning experience for me was I had the opportunity a number of years ago. I, I was not in his band, but I had the opportunity to sub in his band for a couple tours and little gigs and stuff um was this great trumpet player terrence blanchard oh yeah uh, and i he was someone that i grew up listening to and mm -hmm. there were a couple especially specifically a couple of his records that were really influential to me and um kind of before i moved to new york someone that i really wanted to play with and hoped that i would get an opportunity to play with and um I had gone to see his band live many times um, in high school. And uh, so, you know, I was really thrilled. Actually, a friend of mine, this great bass player, Josh Crumbly, was playing in his band. And he and I, Josh and I, were like roommates at school. And um, I've known Josh for many years. And he recommended me like, oh, you should call Jimmy to sub um, for these dates. And so... Yeah, so I had this opportunity to play and I was pretty young. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm still young, but I uh, younger. Uh, I was like 23 and, um, you know, it was I was really kind of nervous because, again, because this was someone I looked up to a lot and, and grew up listening to. And I was like, I can't believe I'm here on stage or I'm going to be on stage with this person, with Terrence Blanchard, this guy who I think who's you know music and and concept band concept really is something i identify with so anyway that that opportunity i can remember that yeah i was i was very nervous and i um but you know i i kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier i i made sure i wanted to check out the music beforehand and and show up because we weren't going to rehearse or anything we were just going to get to the first gig and um have a sound check and that would be about it um so i wanted to make sure like i knew what was you know what to expect uh a little bit or i felt prepared at least and um yeah it was i can remember feeling like uh the way that they played because this was especially this like a working band um that had been touring a lot and playing together for a number of years and um it kind of felt like when you you know you're driving and 
you know, you, I guess you kind of are in, you're maybe you're in the slow lane or something, and then you get in the fast lane and you, and you're like not ready for how fast people drive, you know, and, and not that they, in the sense that the way that they played, they're just so quick in terms of how they reacted to each other, how they listened, the way that they could kind of, you know, each person in the band could take information from what something that someone had just played and then take it in a different direction and so quickly and so effortlessly and and organically too and uh i felt like wow i'm yeah i was just like this it just moved everything's moving so fast and um it was it was thrilling and it was like so fun to be part of that and to try mm -hmm. to you know uh contribute in my way um that i could and and I felt like when even this little tour we did was over, I felt like, yeah, I I got my butt kicked, but I felt like I even in that week or week and a half or whatever, I felt like I got so much better, you know, or I improved, mm -hmm. or they they all pushed me. All, Terrence and everybody in his band, like, you know, really, you know, I think that's one thing that's great about playing, getting an opportunity to play with musicians who have more experience than you is that that that's really like you know, probably the best way to get better. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can practice all you want at home by yourself and you can listen to tons and tons of recordings and that's important too. But when you play with people who have been doing this a long time and longer than you, you know, they, you kind of see what it's like and they push you um, to places that even you maybe wouldn't have realized you could get to uh mm -hmm. and then you know you can take that that experience back with you and that's kind of what i did it was like after that was over i you know came back to new york and i was like okay i now i have like a different idea of what making music is like and the kind of focus mm -hmm. uh intense focus that's required to make music on a high level like that i hadn't maybe really experienced that up until that point uh, and that you know the feeling that I got from them, from Terrence and uh, Josh and Fabian Amazon, pianist and like Bryce Winston, that um, the way that their intense focus, because it wasn't even, you know, of course, there's always, you know, differing levels of experience in terms of the skill level on your instrument that, you know, sure, this person has been playing for their instrument longer than I've been playing mine and that, mm -hmm. but it's more, I felt like the thing that separates truly great musicians from other people is like more mental, you know, the focus, the, you know, kind of, yeah, getting on stage and, and yeah, it's really, that's the word I keep coming back to is focus. Like, mm -hmm. And you actually, yes. it is like a palpable feeling where you're on mm -hmm. stage with people or you're playing with people and you realize, wow, there's this intense level of commitment to this that maybe I'm not quite there yet. I'm not on mm -hmm. that level, even though, sure, I can physically, you know, keep up with them. I can play this music. Right, right. Sure, I, I know how to execute things. That's fine. But then there's that really that extra thing that gives it, you know, that intensity. Uh, and that really comes from your mind and so that that gig uh getting back to memorable gigs and that experience playing with terrence really opened me up to 
yeah, that feeling, uh, experiencing that feeling and knowing like, not only this is what I want, but this is what's required, mm -hmm. you know, to get to that level that I strive for. And, it, and it's still, that's still on, you know, that was like seven or eight years ago, but still ongoing where I, every time, you know, I still think about that. Like I would, you know, I want to get, I want to feel like I'm playing music at that level all the time. And it's hard, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's there, there, you know, oftentimes, you know, we get distracted by things or we, you know, as musicians, yep. we can kind of get in our own heads about whether or not we think we're playing well or, or we're mm -hmm. doing a good job. And all of those things are sort of distractions to that, having that razor sharp focus where it's like, no, all that matters is what's happening in this moment and that I'm mm -hmm. listening to what's happening and I'm reacting and um, offering, you know, my own personal contribution. And yeah. So I, I really think of those gigs, even though they were not that many, even it was just a few months of that and that it was really formative for me in terms of mm -hmm. uh, kind of realizing what it takes to get to the next level of, of musicianship of, you know, improvising. And um, so that, yeah, that was huge for me. Oh yeah. Oh no, I I I I, re I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, well, no, not exactly, but I know, like for example, when I've played gigs with people who are uh, higher level players, you know how that lifts you up. It doesn't mm -hmm. put you down; it lifts you up. Mm -hmm. Or if there is a downside, you realize what more work you have to do. Totally, I, I never will forget. Uh, 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 it was probably been 25 years ago. I played uh, uh, a gig with uh, Jack Suddy, who is the mm -hmm. as, as associate principal trumpet of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Wow. Now, okay. now he's from Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And at that time he was, I think he was either going to Juilliard or he was at, um, uh, I can't remember the school that's in Philadelphia now. The conservatory oh uh, um but anyway curtis uh, curtis, curtis that's it yeah. you're right and mm -hmm. he it, and this was a uh holiday time gig maybe we were playing uh, uh i think it was saint matthew passion or something mm -hmm. and uh of course he only came in and played the gig and uh so i was playing the first trumpet part for the rehearsals and then i stepped over and played second for the gig but <laughs> You know, his level of playing was just that much above and how much I got out of that. And that's mm -hmm. what I, I tell my, you know, I, I would always tell students never shy away from those opportunities. It's not a put down. It's a, it's really a lift up. And uh, because you learn by just being around other good players. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, and what, how we learn, I'm not sure, but we absorb it some way. And it's just by being in that, that kind of surrounding. I know, uh, like I've shared with people, my experiences when I was in uh, graduate school and uh, I was, I went to grad school at uh, University of North Texas mm -hmm. and just being surrounded by so many music majors and people striving for the same thing I was, that was such an uplifting experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I guess we all experience that when we go to music school, Juilliard, I'm sure was, was, is very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause you're just surrounded by such excellent people. 
and uh, and that really is uh, uh, something that buoys you up. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you uh, have you had the opportunity to see uh, Terrence's opera at the Met? No, I, I really wanted to, uh, yeah. and I wasn't able to get tickets, or I kind of I was too late. I think yeah. to get tickets. Yeah. I'm hoping that they'll they'll restage it at some point. I heard great things about it, and I'm a big fan of all of his, you know, not only his playing, but yeah, as a, as a composer mm-hmm. in jazz and film music, uh, now with the operas that he's doing and, um, everything. I'm just, yeah, I, I'm really, he's yeah. someone that I would count as one of my favorite musicians, uh, yeah. and, and someone that I admire a lot. So, well, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing is his personal growth mm-hmm. because he's mm-hmm. gone from being, you know, a trumpet player, to, and a band leader to now composing music out, you know, outside of the, the regular realms of jazz and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really great. Well, I have not seen it yet either, but I do have the Metropolitan Opera app and ah. I do believe they have the uh, HD broadcast that I can access. Wow. So I'm going to get okay. around to watching it one of these yeah. days. But Chicago That's Lyric awesome. is, par- I think they're either presently or they just did or they're just about to stage it. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. So it's making the rounds. That's exciting. Oh, Very I think exciting. it's wonderful. And I, yeah. you know, when you met, mentioned Terrence, I remember the one time that I saw him live in Milwaukee. He mm-hmm. came, there was a really nice club. It's unfortunately not there anymore. And, uh, and uh, just was blown away by what he had to do. And it was really exciting. I've always uh, enjoyed his, uh, his music making. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I will confess to is that as soon as you mentioned his name, the first thing that came to mind is I could hear in my head was Mo Better Blues. <laughs> yeah, un- un- understandable. Of course. Yeah, just, just because yeah. that was such a great movie. And that was yes. actually kind of a semi hit for him. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, let's uh, kind of turn just a little bit. Uh, Jimmy, you're uh, a jazz musician. Your wife's a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. What is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Oh, well, um, you know, I, I guess I would probably say that, you know, I guess it's, you know, jazz is not as popular as it once was uh, many decades ago. And, um, you know, although I still think, you know, I still believe that there is a very strong and, you know, it may not be huge, but strong fan base and group of people that love jazz, but it is small and there's not, you know, there's maybe not as much support uh, commercially for, jazz music as there once was so um i think yeah as far as challenges go it's just that it's maybe yeah it's not as popular as it used to be and so you kind of have to may work that much harder to you know get your music out there uh you know and and i know from having played on a lot of people's recordings and uh talk to people who make recordings that a lot of that, you know, they do on their own, you know, with their own funds and with their own effort and uh, then hope that, you know, it gets some attention, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the press or some listeners and some people will hopefully spend a little money to buy it. Or at least, you know, I know that 
nowadays you don't really have to buy music you can just have access to it all the time for free pretty much but at least hopefully people will listen to what you do and so um you know i think that is a challenge it's just like that's the main thing that always comes to mind is like just it's there aren't you know record deals the same way or big labels that are putting music out as much i mean fortunately there's still blue note and concord and those things exist but you know they don't maybe have quite the reach that they used to and um and a lot of things are just more independent uh which you know yeah i think as far as if you know we kind of look at you know the history of this music this over the past century and we see how people were able to get their names out there uh i think the model for success in jazz now especially as a younger musician um it's a little different and it's more challenging and it requires a little bit more just on on you as an individual to kind of yeah work to put things out there yourself in maybe somewhat you know unorthodox ways or less you know mainstream than it used to be it's not just about making a record and and you know going on tour and people still do that and i still rely on those things myself for my livelihood but um you know you now people like stream things online or people have you know podcasts or any any number of just like different avenues for you know i think that's one kind of good thing about this time is there's so many more ways that you can put your art form your art out there into the world uh that are you don't have to go through traditional avenues but at the same time it's kind of more work because there's not people who are going to do it for you or pay for it uh uh, so yeah so that is a challenge um and and you know also since you know the pandemic and stuff uh of course a lot of you know it's hard harder for music venues to stay open um and to survive and in fact just this week i was i was sad to learn about the closing of this great club in new york the 55 bar yes um and you know that was a place that i've played many times and gone to see music at many times and um i think occupied an important place in the scene in new york and for certain musicians and it's a great room and um yeah so those kind of things i mean those are challenges too that you know there aren't as many places to play as there maybe used to be and you know we have to kind of find new places to play or you know non-traditional venues and um yeah so all of these things is just it i think it's just a little bit harder uh yeah not impossible and not you know certainly not so impossible it's not worth trying but um you know just maybe not as not as easy because there are still so many great musicians i feel like every year because of the schools and just because like i said there's still people who are really interested in jazz music of all ages i think there's just as many great musicians as there ever were but maybe less opportunities for them uh these less traditional opportunities so um yeah it just requires a little bit more effort i guess or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, a little bit mm -hmm. more uh hustle 
I guess, to, to make those things happen still. And uh, it's challenging, but I, I, it's, I'm not without hope. Yeah, so, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that uh, I hear you, what you're saying. A lot of people that I've talked to have, uh, you know, t you know, tell me that, you know, you've just got to have a lot of different irons in the fire, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, cause yes, the traditional ways, you know, there's fewer clubs, jazz is not as popular, you know, and I used to like to explain to my students. So we were talking about different kinds of music. I said, pop music is sort of like the fast food of the arts, whereas jazz classical music is more like fine dining. <laughs> and whereas on television and radio, you'll see ads all the time for your favorite fast food restaurant, but you rarely, if ever, hear any ads for that great steakhouse or supper club or whatever that really has the good stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, try to try to entice them that way. But mm -hmm. but uh, I, uh, you know, I, I was kind of uh, buoyed up myself last night. I mean, talk about audience for jazz like this band I had played last night was my mm -hmm. early jazz group. I mean, you know, so I always kind of make the joke. I say, we play antique music or we play music that's older than dirt, you know, whatever. <laughs> but uh, there, we had a youngish crowd and they were digging some of the stuff that we were doing. We we're doing a lot of, you know, Jelly Roll Martin and Clarence Williams kind of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, like I say on my podcast, you know, it doesn't matter whether the music is, is new or old. If you've never heard it before, it's new to you. Yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. And uh, so anyway, well, let's let's go all the way back, all mm -hmm. the way back in your life as a musician who turned the light on for you. What turned you on to music? Ah, well, my both my parents, my dad was a musician. He was a composer primarily of classical music, um, although, you know, a kind of wide variety of different stuff chamber music and larger groups and it's interesting because he actually his name was David McBride uh one of the things that he maybe was most known for um was writing for percussion uh, and uh although he was doing that before I was born even it, it was and uh but and then my mom, my mom is a visual artist. Uh, she's a painter and um, mostly watercolor. And she, well, she does a lot of different things. And so both my parents are, were artistic. And uh, so, you know, they didn't necessarily, it wasn't that they got me into drums, but they were very supportive of me being interested in music. And as far as the drums go, that I don't really have a, you know, I, I'm not really sure why I play drums other than <laughs> when I was very young, when basically as soon as I could figure out what I was doing, I started playing on some pots and pans at home. Um, I don't know if maybe, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the universe is weird, but the, maybe had to sort of absorb some music from, you know, some of my dad's music. I don't know. I I, uh, I I was interested in percussion, and then my parents saw this and oh, maybe he'd like to take lessons. Actually, mm -hmm. um, and they were able, really fortunately, able to find 
a teacher, this is in Connecticut where I grew up, mm -hmm. um, someone at, who was teaching through the University of Hartford that was willing and, and able to teach someone very young. Um, and so I started taking drum lessons when I was about three. Uh, and then, you know, around the same time as when I also got into, started liking jazz, because actually I had a couple friend of my mom's had had made a couple cassette tapes actually of Frank Sinatra records uh, I think come fly with me and come dance with me uh, those records that he made on Capitol or whatever and uh, I listened to those tapes nonstop. <laughs> you know I didn't really know what was happening in the music I mm -hmm. was too young to mm -hmm. really understand but I just loved the sound the feeling I love the songs. Uh, and yeah, that was kind of the first music that I heard. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would listen to that. And then, yeah, like I said, at that time, also got a little drum set at home and had some kind of, you know, assorted percussion instruments, hand drums and things like that. And just enjoyed sitting at the instrument and, and trying to figure out how to, you know, create a sound, um, play some rhythms or, uh, play something that sounded good to me and then slowly yeah just kind of learned more and more about the instrument itself about music and then when I was in elementary school I got to play in the elementary school jazz band and I got to get some experience playing in a band and then my dad played some piano so I got to you know just play with him at home play some songs and uh, and there was always music on in the house jazz and you know we mm -hmm. listen to the Beatles a lot or Michael Jackson a lot or uh, some classical music and uh, yeah so then it just kind of kept going and then a little bit later I got introduced to I guess you know more about the history of jazz music and about great musicians uh, and drummers and and got to see some of these people play and um, yeah so it just kind of kept growing but um, I was fortunate to grow up in a household that was very supportive of sure of me, you know, being a musician and being interested in music and and also in a town that had a really good school system that supported the arts too. And uh I'm really grateful for all of that. So yeah, yeah. Well, all the, all those things are are helpful mm -hmm. and informative. That's mm -hmm. really wonderful. Uh you know, and, and uh, I, you know, my background sounds very similar, except that neither of my parents were musicians. Hmm. My dad was a shrink and my mother was a housewife, but they both loved music and they both mm -hmm. supported every, everything that I, I did. Mm -hmm. uh, even they may That's not great. have understood it. They still thought, well, if I was doing it, they were supportive of it. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so it's always a great part to have parents mm -hmm. that are supportive. And then, of course, mm -hmm. then things like, say, good schools and mm -hmm. music programs and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so I would like to drill down just a little bit into your creative process, mm -hmm. because you write. Mm -hmm. What inspires you when you write? Ah, well, you know. Probably, I mean, a lot of it has to do with just the things that I, that I hear, um, you know, the music that I listen to, maybe there's something I've heard that I like, you know, sometimes I, if I hear some song on a record that I like, I 
I try to transcribe it and, and figure out what is going on. Like, how did the, you know, how does the harmony move or how does the melody and the harmony relate or rhythmically what's happening? Cause it's just something that appeals to me. And then maybe, you know, in that process of learning some other kind of music, I realized, Oh, I, you know, I like this little progression or just kind of, it's just something to add to your knowledge or, kind of musical vocabulary and then maybe that would come out in music that you write that I write myself um and I also think about as a drummer because I play a lot of other people's music um I think about what do I like to play you know as a drummer uh mm -hmm. what is the kind of music that I would like to play and that I would feel like allows me to be myself or to play the way that I want and so I often think about when I write music, I want to write music that I would like to play uh, as a drummer. If someone else brought this tune to me, would I enjoy playing it and interpreting it? And, mm -hmm. then, you know, would I feel like this is a vehicle to allow me to express myself the way I want? And um, yeah, so I, I, I would say that's kind of a big thing. It's just like writing stuff that I enjoy hearing you know um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not just you know as like a, oh you know just yeah kind of thinking kind of thing about i want to write things that other people when people play them or listen to them they will enjoy hearing it or playing on it uh you know and so you know trying not to write you know stuff that's too complicated i mean it, it can be complicated or not but just stuff that has hopefully a certain like i mentioned earlier i like music that has strong groove uh, mm -hmm. so try to include that you know try to think what as a drummer what would i play on this uh um you know or you know certain kinds of harmony that i like that appeal to me you know from listening to other musicians that i admire and you know i don't know like someone like john schofield is someone who i you know, is a musician that I really admire and someone especially I really like his writing. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, you know, listened to a lot of his records and, you know, learned some of his tunes and figured out what's going on with them. And then, you know, that inspires me or uh, music by Wayne Shorter inspires me or Polonius Monk or any number of people. Um, and I guess, you know, I <laughs> I don't think about it too much, but it all kind of filters in there. And yeah. and when I sit at the piano, I sit at the piano and try to, you know, come up with something. I, I imagine that, I'll, you know, hopefully some of those influences are are kind of being filtered through. And um, yeah, just to write some stuff that that feels good to me that uh, is allows everyone who's playing to kind of open up and uh you know, be be free with it, and yeah, I, I would like to do it more. I don't write a lot of music, uh, okay, and it's not that often. You know, it kind of comes in little spurts of like, oh, I, you know, kind of feel inspired, or you know, recently I booked a couple gigs for myself in New York, and then that kind of inspired me to write some something new for that. And but yeah, it's kind of I go long periods of time without writing anything, so. It's something that, you know, maybe doesn't come quite as easily or, you know, is not 
as natural to me as just playing playing but whenever i do write uh you know it's it's great it's challenging uh and it's of course very rewarding to hear great musicians play your music that you wrote mm -hmm. uh and and interpret it the way that they do and um so yeah but it's well, uh, I, yeah. You know, I, I'm with you there. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I've had, of course, that's not a unique question to you. I've mm -hmm. asked that of a lot of people who write, and it's funny how many of them say what motivates them more than anything to write is a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. you said, when you booked yourself and you had, you had to write some things and and exactly. and that yeah. and, and and it is darn isn't it funny how the brain works? Now I don't write any original material, at least I haven't yet, but I'll hear a tune, and all of a sudden I'll start hearing a different or maybe wacky way that it could be arranged. Mm -hmm. I love to write arrangements, mm -hmm. and uh, and like I was. Uh, I was inspired. I heard a, a recording of uh, opera va, uh, mm -hmm. Charlie Parker's tune, being played by a trumpet quartet. Oh, I heard wow. that. And I went, "Oh, that's kind of cool." I wonder how I could write that for my eight-piece. I have an eight-piece band uh -huh. with five horns, and I thought, well, I could go the super sax route and orchestrate Bird's solo you know as a as mm -hmm. an out chorus or something and i thought oh that's already been done you know and it's amazing how then the ideas start churning and you start getting ideas and i love it when that happens but you yeah. unfortunately you're right it's not an everyday thing mm -hmm. the tap is not on all the time <laughs> you never know when your muse is going to spew uh well anyway well that's great uh jimmy do you have any uh new recording projects uh either your own or playing with others uh planned or in the works um let's see i mean i i'll say i don't want to you know i don't really have like a concrete plan yes yeah, so i'm you know may reluctant to put this out there but i am thinking or i have sort of vague ideas about maybe recording some of my own music at some point in the future but Wonderful. that's not a not a any kind of set plan or planned release yet so you know i'll just say that's sort of a vague thing as far as okay other people's stuff i have played on some records uh or recorded some stuff recently that i think is supposed to be out at some point maybe this year or next year um i and some couple things that i'm looking forward to i played on a record a few months ago with a friend of mine the saxophonist troy roberts who's a great tenor player originally from australia um and that's what that was great that with this guitar player paul ballenbeck great guitar player here in new york and john patitucci was playing bass yeah. um and that was really great to work with them and i really like troy's playing of course but also his writing compositions are really cool and kind of perfect i mean troy's someone who i have played with a lot and you know i was speaking of composition i was talking about tunes that allow everybody to kind of do their thing and open up he's definitely someone who writes music that way that it's you know they're they have a lot of sophistication and, and detail but they're also just fun you know fun tunes to play that have you know unique grooves or kind of unique vibe so look out for that troy roberts uh also i i played with 
uh, I recorded with my friend Noah Garabedian, who's a great bass player here in New York, and he has a record coming out, I think, in October. I think there is actually a date um, with saxophonist Dana Stevens and this pianist Carmen Stoff, and we've been playing together for a long time. And um, again, I really like Noah's compositions and um, yeah, the vibe of his tunes. Uh, it's really nice. So look out for that. Um, and yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of recordings, I guess, that I've played on that have come out in the past year or two. And uh, okay. yeah. You well, it's good you're keeping look, busy. Look them up. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wonderful. Well, let me ask you then, if I were to come to New York in the next mm -hmm. few weeks, Mm -hmm. Where are some typical or regular places I might be able to hear you play? Ah, well, I play fairly often at this club called Smalls okay. uh, in the West Village. Um, a lot of times, actually, with my wife, Mickey Yamanaka, mm -hmm. who I think you know. And, I do. Uh, um, yeah, she has a fairly semi-regular gig there, and we, we play there on Mondays, usually every other Monday um and so that's a place you could hear me um and mickey see. and mickey of <laughs> course yeah uh, yeah and uh she's someone who i you know of course i mean i'm biased being married to her but I, i'm a great fan of her playing and someone i play with a lot and someone uh who i really enjoy playing with i think that you know i mean it goes without saying that we have a great connection but um we have been playing a lot more actually in the past year or two since the pandemic. And um, yeah, I think we have kind of, I would say, I mean, it's kind of a special thing. So that's worth checking out. Um, All right. And uh, let's see. I mean, that's a place you can hear me. And I also, I, I was also going to say too, go ahead and do a plug for your online yes, uh, performing yeah. that you guys do every week. Yeah, yeah. For those who are not in New York um, or want to see something online, Mickey and I uh, do a streaming series every, usually Wednesdays, but the day of the week changes sometimes, but generally Wednesdays. That's called Mickey's Mood. That's the name. And you can find the link to that on her Facebook page or YouTube, um, YouTube channel. And we invite different guests over every week mm -hmm. and play different kinds of music you know we focus on different jazz composers or uh artists or um maybe a specific recording play music from a specific recording and um yeah every week so and it's free um you can check that out usually at 5 p.m on wednesdays mm -hmm. um and uh yeah so that's somewhere you, you can hear us play and um i mean i play it you know there's a club called cellar dog formerly fat cat um that i play at sometimes uh or at uh yeah i'm trying to think um in new york where you could hear me at birdland i think i have a couple of gigs at birdland in the coming weeks and um yeah just kind of the uh oh, typical clubs that you know are mm -hmm. presenting jazz Nowadays, oh, Mickey and I are also playing next week together at Dizzy's at Jazz oh, at Lincoln Center on wonderful. Wednesday. I think that's 
the first June first. So uh, that should be fun. Um, come sure. check that out. And yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad glad to hear that. Well, I I always uh, threaten all of my guests that are in New York. I said one of these days I am going to come to New York and I'll I'll let <laughs> you do. know and hit you yeah. up and come come Absolutely. see come see you play because uh, mm -hmm. I I really love to love to do that. Uh, well, Jimmy, is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Um, I mean, not that I can think of, just that, you know, keep keep supporting the music, keep, uh, uh, you know, going to support the venues in your wherever you live that present music and go patronize them. And, uh, you know, if you're able to keep, you know, buying CDs or records or MP3s or however you like, uh, you know, supporting musicians as, as directly as you can. Uh, and yeah. And then, you know, I guess I would just kind of add, I guess, you know, cause in light of some of the recent events that we have experienced in this country and the, you know, that we've seen in the news and all of the, very scary and sad things that are happening that, you know, uh, going, you know, music, obviously music is, is a force for good in the world. And also music brings people together, um, whether they're playing together or listening together or, uh, all of those things. And that, you know, I guess we can just keep reminding ourselves to, to be good to one another, mm. <laughs> you know, and, uh, love each other. A little more because uh there's uh not you know i think there's there's not enough of that in the world and whether that's through music or something else uh, we can find ways to connect uh and you know so i just yeah i well myself, I, I, church, yes let's i yeah. couldn't agree with you more jimmy yeah uh if there's any time that we need to come together and be kinder to each other it's now because it's mm -hmm. been deplorable what's been going on in, mm -hmm. in our country the last uh, couple of weeks and i mm -hmm. uh, i think music of course i'm biased because i love music but i think music is a that healing balm mm -hmm. for our souls and food for our souls and it's mm -hmm. a way to bring us together mm -hmm. yeah i couldn't agree with you more but jimmy thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your day uh, to talk with me. And I certainly want to wish you the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Well, thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. You bet. And have it. a great day. You too. Okay. Mm -hmm. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. My discovery composer of the week is Walter Piston. Piston was born in Rockland, Maine, January 20th, 1894, and died in Belmont, Massachusetts, November 12th, 1976. In 1905, the family moved from Rockland, Maine to Boston, where Piston studied art at the Massachusetts Normal Art School from 1912 to 1916. It was there that he met his future wife, the painter, Catherine Nason. 
largely self-taught as a musician, he earned money playing the piano and violin in dance bands. From 1917 to 1921, he also played the violin in orchestras and chamber ensembles on the direction of Georges Longy. When the United States entered World War I, he quickly learned to play the saxophone so that he could join the Navy band. During his service in the Navy, he learned to play other band instruments as well. Piston entered Harvard in 1919 as a special music student. He enrolled formally in 1920 and graduated with honors in 1924. His teachers included A.T. Davison and Edward Burlingame Hill, among others. From 1921 to 1924, he conducted the Pyrian Sodality. Harvard's student orchestra. He pursued further studies with Ducat, Boulanger, and Inescu at the École Normale de Musique from 1924 to 1926, where he played the viola in the school orchestra. His two earliest extant works, three pieces for the flute, clarinet and bassoon of 1925, and the piano sonata of 1926, reveal the influences of Boulanger and Ducat, respectively. The lean counterpoint of the former reveals a neoclassical elegance related to the styles of Stravinsky and Hindemith while the romantic grandeur of the latter suggests an affinity with Brahms and Franck. In subsequent scores, such as the Flute Sonata of 1930, Piston merged these two aesthetics, forging a conservative, modernist style of his own. Upon his return to Boston in 1926, Piston joined the music department at Harvard, a position he held until his retirement in 1960. He did most of his composing during the summer months, which he spent on a dairy farm in Woodstock, Vermont. His occasional attempts at descriptive music, such as Turnbridge Fair for Symphonic Band, written in 1950, and three New England sketches for orchestra, written in 1959, took rural New England as their subject. Even in his more abstract works, his syncopated rhythms, austere textures, and clipped forms bespoke a special attachment to that part of the country. Finding an early advocate in Sergei Kusevitsky, Piston's first works for orchestra were commissioned by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Piston eventually wrote 11 works for that ensemble, as well as fulfilling commissions from the major orchestras of New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Dallas, Louisville, Minneapolis, and Cincinnati, among others. Aaron Copeland also helped to bring him to national attention by featuring his music at Yaddo and the New School for Social Research, and by declaring him in 1936 one of the most expert craftsmen American music can boast.
He also earned the admiration of numerous other composers, including Igor Stravinsky, Ernst Krenick, Roger Sessions, Howard Hansen, Virgil Thompson, and Elliot Carter. Piston's mastery took many forms. Intimately familiar with instruments and possessing a phenomenal ear, he worked primarily at a desk, scoring his music as he composed it, rather than beginning with a piano reduction. His masterful orchestrations emphasize clarity and brilliance, as opposed to novelty and effect. Along with a compelling sense of form, he also displayed a dazzling handling of canon, invertible counterpoint, melodic retrograde and inversion, and other contrapuntal techniques. The traditional forms of sonata, rondo, variation, fugue, and passacaglia acquired a distinctive lucidity and compression in his hands. One can readily discern in his music an engineer's concern for formal precision, a painter's care for coloristic detail, and a violist's attention to inner voices. While some thought the reserved quality of his music a limitation, his admirers extolled not only his impressive technical skills, but the longing tenderness of his slow movements and the sparkling gaiety of his scherzos. Having absorbed Schoenberg's 12-note method as early as his flute sonata of 1930, and having composed a strict albeit tonal, 12-note work as early as the chromatic study on the name of Bach for the organ in 1940, Piston initially established a reputation as a composer's composer. Some of his more accessible efforts in the late 1930s and early 1940s, notably Carnival Song for Chorus, written in 1938, the ballet suite from The Incredible Flutist, 1938, and the Second Symphony, 1943, however, found favor among the concert-going public. The Symphony No. 4 of 1950 and the Symphony No. 6 of 1955 became particular favorites. As he made more extensive use of the 12-note method in the 1950s and especially the 1960s, his music became more chromatic and dense. These late works were also more adventurous formally, featuring complex one-movement designs rather than his more traditional three- and four-movement forms. A relatively slow worker, Piston joked, that it took him an hour to decide upon a note and another hour to decide to erase it. He produced about one work a year, the eight symphonies and five-string quartets representing the heart of his achievement. During his last two decades, he produced a series of concertos, although not necessarily titled as such, for the viola, two pianos, the violin, the harp, the cello, the clarinet, the flute, and string quartet. He often composed with the capabilities and traits of particular players, ensembles, and even halls in mind, and these works are no exception. 
Some of them were written for such celebrated virtuosi as Accardo, Zabaleta, and Rostoprovich. Others were undertaken for distinguished members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, such as the flautist Dorit Anthony Dwyer and other friends. All attest to his great knowledge of instrumental technique. As a teacher, Piston was the acclaimed author of a series of texts, Principles of Harmonic Analysis, 1933, Harmony, 1941, Counterpoint, 1947, and Orchestration, 1955. Translated into numerous languages, the latter three were among the most esteemed and widely used books of their kind. The Harmony texts in particular initiated a modern era of music theory in which theoretical principles derive from the observation of musical practice, as David Thompson has noted. These texts also shed new light on the relationship between harmonic root movement and rhythmic structure and between orchestration and form. <coughs> Excuse me. In his occasional critical essays, Piston wrote thoughtfully on subjects such as the music of Roy Harris and the limitations of the 12 note method. Elliot Carter, Leroy Anderson, Arthur Berger, Gail Kublik, Irving Fine, Gordon Binkert, Ellis Coase, Leonard Bernstein, Robert Middleton, Robert Maves, Harold Shapiro, Alan Sapp, Daniel Pinkham, Noel Lee, Billy Jim Layton, Claudio Spees, Samuel Adler, Frederick Razuski, and John Harbison, who numbered among his students at Harvard, benefited not only from, in Bernstein's words, his non-pedantic approach to such academic subjects as fugue, but from close familiarity with his finely crafted music. Although he encouraged them to find their own way, many of these composers show his stylistic influence, especially in matters of contrapuntal finesse and textural clarity. Piston's achievements were recognized by Pulitzer Prizes for the Symphonies No. 3 and 7, a Nomberg Award for the Symphony No. 4, and New York Music Critics Circle Awards for the Symphony No. 2, the Viola Concerto, and the Fifth String Quartet. He was elected to the National Institute of Arts and Letters in 1938, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1940, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 1955. He also received a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Coolidge Medal, and numerous honorary doctorates. In addition, the French government bestowed upon him the decoration of being an officer of the Order of the Arts and Letters. The All Music Guide lists one recording of his ballet, The Incredible Flutist, two recordings of his work for symphonic band Turnbridge Fair, 26 recordings of his chamber music, two recordings of his choral works, 13 recordings of his concerti, five recordings of his compositions for keyboard, eight recordings of his symphonies, and 15 recordings of other works for orchestra. In my show notes is a link to a performance 
of Piston's suite from his ballet, The Incredible Flutist, performed by the Spanish Radio and Television Orchestra, conducted by Carlos Calmar. That wraps episode number 85. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing Canadian blues guitarist and singer Sue Foley. Other upcoming interviews, including jazz flautist, composer, arranger, and band leader Jamie Baum, jazz guitarist, composer, and educator Alex Wentz, and jazz pianist, composer, and band leader Mickey Yamanaka. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.